Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD. Yay. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in pre-production on maybe two, maybe zero. Who knows in life? What, what does anything mean? I do sales and I used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. More importantly, this week we welcome writer Sean Colin Smith, who has two thirds of, of what well, two thirds of his name are like two of my favorite names on the show to talk about moving to LA, how he got into a writer's room and what he has learned through the two of the rooms that he's been in so far. Also, we want to give out a big thank you to Austin Film Festival, who's essentially responsible for making this episode happen because they provided the venue for Alric to meet Sean Collins Smith in the first place. After we talk to Sean, we play another round of the game. But first, Alric, how are you? I am doing well. It's the new year. I'm back at my desk. Yesterday was like, I was feeling so sluggish and so like, I don't want a beer today. Uh, and then I had this super crazy fire drill at work where I actually had to do some editing. I never edit for my job. I always post produce, but there was like this demand for all these different assets they wanted done by like 3.30 PM. So I jumped in, I edited like from 11 AM to like 3.30 PM nonstop. Oh <laughs> like basically just getting Beth to bring me food and just like jamming it in my mouth with one hand while I'm like, you know, making edits. It was, it was crazy. It was really, it was fun. It was also stressful and like it, it took a lot of energy out of me. And I feel like, but it also it got me back into work. Now I'm like, okay, work now. Now I'm working again. <laughs> so I feel like it sort of got me out of my like holidays, like wishing it was still the holidays and back into reality. But yeah, nothing really interesting to report. I mean, we had a really great meeting about my movie right before the break. You know, we've got a good plan. I haven't really checked in since then, besides just to say Happy New Year to the team. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what's going on. Uh, This new plan is interesting. It's sort of, yeah, it's kind of backwards to what we were doing before. It's like, oh, we weren't really getting any luck with actors. Let's just, like, we know we can get these people. Let's just Go tell the, the distributor we have these people. Get the M the MG, then go get the people. Oh, which I guess is how he's done it before, and it's you know it's it's hurt him because like he tried doing it once and then he couldn't get it, the actor he thought he could get, and then he couldn't get anyone as good as them, and then the whole thing fell apart. And so like he is basically like making educated guesses based off of working with them before, past connections and other agents that he has to like say, yeah, we can get either these three or like here's three backups for each person or two backups. And so 
I think what's happening is he's going to do that deal. And then we're going to go to these people and be like, hey, we actually have, we can actually make you a real offer and then see what happens. So fingers crossed that that goes well. And uh, hopefully we'll be making a movie in the, the first half of the year with, with any luck. Yay. What's going on with you? How was your break? As you know, I have I was sick. I was so funny. I was emailing with Zoe Eisenberg, who listened to the show. I was late in emailing to her. And I was like, I'm sorry, I've been in, in bed for a few days. And she's like, wow, it sounds like you've had a really bad year with regard to illness. And I didn't, I put that together. Like every time I talk to someone, I'm like, I'm sick. I was sick. I just got over being sick, (laughs) which is pretty new for me. But I think it's the toddler thing. You have a toddler and like all of a sudden you're like, I'm just a cesspool of just disgusting germs at all times. Break was fine other than being sick. But I thought I did think in advance because you always ask me, how are you? And I'm supposed to think (laughs) about what I'm supposed to say. And this time I did my homework. I just finished that podcast that I talk about a lot, Dead Eyes. I, I, I don't have to resummarize the podcast, but just check out Dead Eyes. It's amazing. Connor Ratliff. And I, I feel like I took away a lot from the last episode about not having expectations about projects. Like it's really important to go into projects without expectations, which is very hard for me. I put a lot of high expectations on people and on projects And I need to stop doing that because you always get disappointed. But I think that's the key. We always talk about pressure. We always talk about enjoying the process. But for me, something about the phrase like don't have any expectations was really helpful to hear today. So I'm working on that's why I made that joke at the beginning. Like, am I in pre-production? Who knows? Like, you know, no expectations. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I got to stop focusing on anticipating, you know, it to a degree, but really just be in the present a little bit more. So you just mean like, don't get overly excited about like a project happening or whatever. Like, don't expect it to to start production in 2023 or whatever. Just like be like, you know, free of or that. Yeah. Just be like, okay, whatever happens, happens. And I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I got to work on that. I don't think I'll... I'm never going to be 100% there, but I'm really trying. And I think it's interesting because as indie filmmakers, you have to keep on pushing the train forward. So how do you push the train forward without generating that energy from somewhere? Usually I generate it from a place of expectation, right? So now I have to generate the energy from a place of like, no, it's just a task. I'm just checking in. That's my task for the day. Move on. Move on to the next task. Live in the present. Get things done. Knock them off the to-do list. But don't dwell or expect too much. So that's what I'm working on. Okay, I have to ask you though, like on the last episode, you, t- you dropped this bombshell that like you were I reaching know. out to like some famous actor person and blah, blah, blah. Is there any update on that? No, you say? there's no this update. No they, words. They decided wow. not to send an offer before the end of the year. Oh. So the agency was like, send us an offer. And the actor was like, I love the script. I, you know, I'm interested in doing this. And my producers were, I guess, talking to the casting director and they didn't get all the intel they needed in terms of coming up with the number. What is the number going to be? Oh, right? What's the opening? What's the the opening offer in the conversation? Mm. So because they didn't get that conversation in line before like 
offices shut down. They never sent it. So now I'm, I, I texted them today. I was like, hey, back at office today, just checking in. Of course, there I am, expectations, you know, but I just wanted to keep the train going. So we'll see. We'll see if they send an offer. We'll see what happens. Nothing has changed. And it's been like three weeks, right? Wow. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's what happens. It takes a long time. I feel like even like when, you know, you think like it's like the offer's being sent. It's all good. It's like still weeks, right. months, who knows, you know. I like your your new Zen approach. I want to take that. I want to steal that. Like Try. no expectations. Just no like expectations. whatever. See what happens. Who cares? We'll make a movie or we won't make a movie. No big deal. It'll be great either way. Life's good. But don't forget, speaking of expectations, don't forget to support us on Patreon. <laughs> Patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. It is how we pay for our editor. It is how we keep the show going. Every dollar goes into the making of the show. It's it's really important. And we we share staff meetings. We share bonus episodes. We're happy to grow the Patreon in any way that people request. It is evolving. It is malleable. Uh, so please support us there. Think about, you know, like a late holiday gift. Um, And also, don't forget the ISA or the International Screenwriters Association is the number one screenwriting resource for writers looking to break in or restart their screenwriting journeys. They have a relaunch of their site. They've updated features. I think they also just announced their top 25 writers list. I started started to see some people announce it on Twitter. So check out networkisa.org and join a community of like-minded writers. And without any more delay, here's our chat with Sean Collins-Smith. All right, we're here with Sean Collins-Smith. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So first, give us the elevator pitch for Chicago PD. Oh, elevator pitch for Chicago PD is a special police unit in Chicago is tasked with solving the most heinous and like the most unique crimes that face Chicago, whether it's a big drug ring, whether it's them getting tipped off about a like a child slavery thing that's going on that's being run through the town. It's a small task force of cops who track that stuff down and solve those crimes so that the regular cops can solve kind of the regular everyday stuff. How is your writer's room structured? Are you asking like in terms of the different ranks or in terms of like, is it in person? Is it hybrid? Is, is it over oh. Zoom? All of the above? My gosh, I know so little about writer <laughs> about writer's room that I every all of the above, like anything you want to say that could color that answer. Okay, perfect. So it's it's kind of a, I'll attack it with a two pronged answer. First, you know, it's it's a fairly small room. We have the showrunner and then her number two, but they actually write about half the season. And then underneath of them is only six other writers, including myself. It's a fairly diverse room. I mean, our showrunner is a woman. You know, I'm a person of color. I'm biracial. The writer who's right. So I'm a staff writer slash story editor. The person who's right above me, you know, next up on the ladder, she's story editor. She's a person of color. And then one of the producers is a person of color as well. And so it's kind of like a nice split between in diversity between men and women, people of color. You know, none of us really have, from what I can recall in the room, none of us have police experience, but we do have a consultant who's fantastic. And my second answer to that question is in terms of our proximity 
we aren't really meeting in person. We met in person for the first few weeks. And then after that, we kind of just transitioned to what I'm kind of half facetiously, half seriously calling an independent study, which is you just go home and you, after you have pitched your individual episode, because we are a procedural, you're free to write it, outline it, and and then send it in every week or two for notes. And you keep getting notes, you keep getting notes. And so I'm on my last batch of notes for my outline. And as soon as that's done, I'm going to be able to go to script. And then I'm sure I'm going to be getting like at least a half a dozen round of notes, either from the showrunner or her number two, or just the studio themselves. Sometimes they do it all at once. You'll hop on. A, I've heard of people hopping on Zooms with five people. Two of them work for the network. Two of them work for the show. Then there's like a fifth one who might be the consultant. And you're kind of at the mercy of all of them. So that's kind of how it's all structured right now in terms of the ranks and in terms of you know where we're meeting. So, yeah. And this is probably more than one answer to this question, but how long does it take your room to write an episode? Ooh, that is a very good question. I mean, it kind of depends, again, going back to the ranking, like, you know, if you're the showrunner, you could probably, I've seen or heard of Gwen, who's our showrunner, cranking out an episode in maybe four days. Others, maybe me or the person above me, we might have several weeks to write our episode because we have to do the outline that has to get approved, then we have to do script, and that has to get approved through some rounds of notes and Gwen is brilliant and she's a machine and she knows this thing front to back whereas I who've only been on the show for six months it's gonna take me a little longer I'm not exaggerating when I say between me writing the teaser and then my script finally getting approved and going to shoot it could take six weeks and that I mean that's a lot of time and I admit that that's a lot of time but it's because I'm still kind of trying to understand the formula of the show And I don't say formula in a bad way. Every show has a formula. It's essentially the showrunner's voice mixed with the type of narrative they're trying to tell every week. And once you can nail that down, it's almost like learning a foreign language. But once you learn it, it becomes that much easier. And that's why if someone who's, for instance, a supervising producer, and this is their fifth year on the show, they might be expected to do three scripts a season. Whereas I might only be expected to do one. And it's because they know that it's going to take me three, four, five, six weeks to kind of get that script up to the shooting quality. Mm. Well, can I ask a clarifying question? There's another question, but would it, when you say teaser, what does that mean? Is that the cold open or is that some, what is the teaser when you just refer to it no, right then? Precisely. That's, that's essentially the cold open. I, I mean, a lot of times with comedies, you'll have what's called the cold open. And then with dramas, you'll have what's called the teaser. Oh. Some showrunners just interchange it and they don't care what you call it. But in most, four to five act TV dramas that are hour long, they all have teasers. And and it's just, you know, the first three to five minutes that sets up the case. How long does it take your team to shoot an episode of television? It's around two weeks from what I've seen on the schedule. Yeah. And then compared to all the other projects you've written or rooms you've been in, how challenging is this one? I would say it presents unique challenges, you know, just for the sake of transparency. This is only my second room. My first room was... Field of Dreams, which Mike Shore is doing a reboot of. It's kind of like a serialized limited series, seven episodes. And, you know, that was very different because as the room, we all contributed to the entire run of every episode. And so, you know, we'd come to the table and he'd say, this is what I want to happen, have happen in episode one. We can change it. And so we, we start spitballing and then episode one's done and we all pitch on episode two, then three, four, five, six, and seven. Chicago PD is a little different because you're kind of all on your own. And so by virtue of it being more of a solo venture for each episode until you start getting notes, that can be challenging because you're not getting as many ideas thrown out out there as I was, for instance, in the Field of Dreams room. Now, what I've also heard is that for 60-minute drama procedurals such as this, 
this is a truly unique experience. I, I have a friend who's on FBI International. This is his second year, just as like this is my second year on this show, or excuse me, first year on the show. But we're both story editors. And he told me that they meet every day for several hours every day on Zoom. Sometimes they go in person and they like each have their individual offices and they'll have that. But they're meeting in some form or fashion every single day for multiple hours a day. Chicago PD, we are not. We are meeting maybe once every three to four weeks. And when we meet, it's on Zoom. And when we hop on Zoom, it's for maybe an hour or two. And that's it. And that's by virtue of the fact that this is a very procedural, you know, episode by episode narrative as opposed to a serialized spanning 10 episode epic. So, yeah, it's uh, I would say by because of everything I just said, there are unique challenges. Like I preface this by saying and and the unique challenges are it's almost all you, at least at the beginning. You're, you're trying to write your brain to come up with these ideas. Whereas in Field of Dreams, I might pitch something. Maybe it's only 55 percent there. Someone else carries the ball 25 more percent. And then Mike Shore carries it the other 20% and we're done. Here, it's like you got to do all the carrying and until you get it up to shape to, to turn it into someone to get those notes. The thing that has been challenging me the most, I would say, is, is that. What kind of notes would you receive on an outline? Like, And it doesn't have to be Chicago PD. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious what notes get are irritating, actually. Like what are unhelpful and helpful notes on an outline? Because just quick context, Alrick and I, though we've interviewed quite a few writers in the TV world, we're both feature writers. So that's the world I'm more comfortable with. I, I just don't understand the process that you're going through completely. Sure. That's a great question. I would say, I, I'll be honest, and I'm not even saying this because, you know, this is a podcast, but I haven't received any notes from my showrunner that I would characterize as annoying or unhelpful. She is she is completely in tune with what this show is supposed to be. Not only is it her vision, but she's been running it for like half a decade. And, you know, when she started taking over to now, the ratings have steadily gone up and up and up. So it's like, OK, whatever she's doing is working. So if she says something, if she says jump, I say how high there, there's no I, I've been taking my ego out of that equation completely because this is my first year. I've got a bunch to learn and she's she knows it all. But I would, you know, to go back to answer the first part of your question in terms of what does it look like to get notes? on a on a show you know i'll be completely honest when i pitched my episode they were on board with about 20% of it and about 80% of it they said look that stuff's really cool but that's too big this is too big for one episode so why don't you zero in on the first 20% that you pitched and let's work on expanding that as opposed to like doing that and doing 12 other things so that's a great note because it's telling me to kind of truncate my idea into a more character-driven drama instead of 18 different plot points. So then when I zero in on that 20%, it's like, okay, well, the teaser looks great now. Act one looks great, but you're kind of going off the rails with act two because they catch up to the bad guy a little too quickly. We, we need to wait till act four to find the bad guy because that's kind of the formula of this show. And we don't want to track him down until maybe the end of act four. And then we can arrest him and have closure by the end of act five. Right. So it's notes like that, that, that I've been getting on my outline. Now I'm fine getting those notes. They don't make me feel bad. If I'm still getting those notes next year, when I get the title bump, you know, if they have me back, which I hope they do, 
then for me and probably for the showrunner, that's going to be a little concerning because it's like, dude, this is your second year on the show. You should know the formula, the blueprint for what we're trying to accomplish here. Why? Let's have a conversation. What are you what are you not understanding? Right. And so I would say that's kind of the has been the brunt of the notes thus far is stick to the script, i.e. the blueprint. And, you know, just be open to accepting the fact that they understand the DNA of the show better than I do because they've been on it much longer than I have. And as a story editor, what are your like specific responsibilities in the room that you have to do as in that role? Yeah, it, it's interesting because a lot of these ranks are misnomers in a way, because I, in fact, someone was asking me at the Austin Film Festival, which we were just talking about, and they said, you're a story editor. What is it like to edit story? And the answer is, I don't edit story. That's not my job. It's just the title. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're a master sergeant. What is it like to be a master of all the sergeants? And it's like, no, that's not, it's just a name. It's like, what's in a name, right? And so my responsibilities honestly are essentially I'm just writing. I'm on script. I'm, I'm writing, I'm pitching ideas. I'm on outline. And then when the outline's done, I write my script and then that's it. As you go further up, like for instance, I'm staff writer slash story editor right now to, to give kind of a quick, a quick concise dive into the minutia of all this. I was a staff writer on Field of Dreams. That room only lasted for 12 weeks. In the old days of 10 years ago, if you were a staff writer on a show, you were usually there for about 40 weeks. And they considered that, you know, paying your dues. And then you get the title bump to story editor. Well, since I was only in Field of Dreams for 12 weeks, NBC Universal, I, I assume this is how it went down. They saw that I was coming in, that this was my second room, but they saw that my previous room was 12 weeks. So they're like, this guy needs a little more work at the staff writer level. And frankly, they were right. As I've talked about, I'm still trying to get my feet on the ground with how to adjust to the bl blueprint of this show. They said, we're going to make you staff writer for the first 20 weeks, and then we're going to bump you up to story editor for the second 20 weeks. And I said, fine, that's great. And so other than responsibilities getting heightened a little bit, that also bumps your pay up a lot. Average pay for someone on a four 40-week drama makes about $4,600 a week. Average pay for a story editor is $7,900 a week. It's actually the single biggest jump between ranks and writer rooms, which is... And also, by the way, sorry, I'm taking such a deeper dive in this than I meant to. The second big thing that you get from staff writer to story editor is a script fee. If you write a script, which I helped co-write a script for Field of Dreams as a staff writer... You do not get the script fee, which is around $35,000. It's just, it, it, you don't get it as a staff writer. As a story editor, you do. So it's one of those things where when you get that bump, not only are you getting, what, 70% more pay, it's crazy. You're also getting the script fee on top of that. So as a story editor, if you write two of the 22 uh, scripts in a year, that's 70K right off the bat, plus the 7,900 a week you're getting for 40 weeks, right? Now, obviously, taxes take out of that. 10% goes to my agent. 10% goes to my manager. If I get a lawyer at some point, which I'm probably going to do in the next 12 to 16 months, I'll, they'll get 5%. So that's 25% plus taxes. You're probably looking at 50% of it gone, right? But 50% of a shit ton of money is still a shit ton of money. And as a story editor, you get a lot more of it. Now, after that, you know, you've got executive story editor and the producer and stuff like that. And essentially what they're going to expect as you get higher in rank is you might start mentoring other writers below you. You might go from having one or two scripts a year to having four. They might expect you, like for instance, I, I won't name the show, but there was a show last season that had a an episode about, it wasn't Chicago PD, by the way. It had an episode about, I think like a school shooting and an actual school shooting happens because this is the United States of America. 
And they had to pull that episode, like, I think 10 days before it aired. So now they have 10 days to come up with a new idea, outline it, write it, get it approved, and then shoot it. If you are an EP, a co-EP, you know, you're, you're the top of the chain, they're going to expect you to be able to, to do that, either to do it or for you to pair up with someone else and do it. They would not come to the staff writer or the story editor and say, hey, we need this in 10 days, you know, from from pitch to, to finale. Congratulations. Go do it. And it's like, no, they're not, they're not going to do that because I'm so low on the totem pole that the expectation would never go there. So that's kind of a, a brief outline of the different expectations. Each room is different. Obviously, I'll add that caveat. But that's kind of how I'm seeing that's how I'm seeing the Chicago PD room from afar is running like that. Thank you so much for sharing real numbers. Like, uh, I'm sure you know that that's rare. And it's a breath of fresh air. Sure. I have kind of a very specific process question. Because as a writer, I'm kind of picturing characters in different ways. As a TV writer, you already know the cast unless it's a day player or a guest star or whatever it is. Are you writing to what you think are the strengths of the cast? Or are you encouraged by the showrunner to say, like, do actors ever say, gosh, I really want to break down and like, how much power do actors have in influencing the script? How much power do you have in terms of catering to the strengths of, of talent? And how does... How does the cast come into play, I guess, overall? Yeah, that's a great question. I I will fully admit I, I have not been on set yet, so I haven't got to personally interact with the actors. Obviously, I've watched a lot of the show, both as researching before I got staffed and especially after I got staffed. You know, when I write, I am I do have the luxury of being able to hear their voices on the page. Like when I'm writing, you know, Voight, who heads up this special unit, I'm hearing Voight's. He has a very like gravelly voice. I'm hearing his gravelly voice as I'm like outlining this and imagining him saying these things that I'm, you know, concocting. And so that's definitely helpful. I'll say the friend that I mentioned before, who's on FBI International, one of the things he told me, and which I'm looking forward to doing, is, you know, being able to watch the dailies as they come in to see how not only how the actors are saying certain lines, but also, which I never would have thought about, seeing how they act in between takes. Like, are they do they stay in character? Do they are they funny guys? Like, like, are they, you know, kind of laid back and they only get intense when they're saying their lines. And then when the line's over and they go for break to reset, they kind of are laid back and fun. Are they more open to new ideas on set where it's like, hey, I just came up with this line. Do you want to try it? Or do they want to stick strictly to the script? These are all things you can glean from watching dailies, because if you can see them in the background kind of doing their own thing, it's, it's going to kind of inspire you to understand not only their process, but also what they want. Like, what do they want that they're not getting right now on set? And if you see them in the background, kind of like crossing stuff out on the script, then you know that, oh, this is a guy who edits. This this guy likes to cut out lines that he does not, that he thinks don't fit his voice. Or if you see someone else in the background and they're reading over their script, like, like repeatedly over and over again and practicing lines, saying it different ways, then you know, okay, well, this guy, he likes to interpret lines in different ways each take. So let me keep that in mind when I'm on set. So that's something that I'm looking forward to doing. I haven't done it yet because I haven't been in that situation yet, but I, it's certainly certainly seems to have helped my friend on, on FBI International. So. so I want to take a, a step back, basically, because you're in a situation where a lot of writers are aspiring to be like you're you're staffed in, in two rooms now. You have management, you know, you're kind of living that dream that a lot of writers are like working really hard to get to. So can you just talk about like some of the circumstances that led you to where you are? Like, did you get reps first? Like, how did you get your reps? Like, what, what was the how did this all unfold to this wonderful conclusion that you have right now? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I guess I'll take a brief step back and just say that, you know, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles. I wasn't born here. I, I was born and lived in Richmond, Virginia for 30 years until I moved out here. In 2018, I won the ISA Fast Track Fellowship. The ISA is the International Screenwriters Association. And when I won that fellowship, it was one of those things where they'll fly you out here, they'll put you up in a hotel for a week on their dime, they, they drive you around to meetings. And one of the meetings I took was with a manager and he wanted to sign me right then. He was like, I've read, well, when I won the ISA, I won it with my first two pilot scripts and he wanted to sign me right there. He said, look, I'm going to, if you sign with me, my expectation is that you should move out here. And so we, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, talked about it. And we we were just like, okay, let's let's go out there. That's how I met my first rep and signed with my first rep. What's interesting is I'm not with that rep anymore. And that is interesting too, because for two reasons. First, I met a guy who told me about actually back in 2017, he said, Sean, you know, whenever you get your first manager, just keep one thing in mind. He's not going to be the manager that you finish your career with. At some point, he's going to leave you. You're going to leave him. Maybe he drops out of the business. Maybe he goes and joins another management company and he can't take all his clients. Something's going to happen to conspire so that you're not going to be with that rep anymore. And he was right. The person who told me this. And so I left that manager in actually, I think I signed with him in May 2018. And I left him, I signed with him May 2018, moved to Los Angeles, November 2018. And then I left him, we kind of had a mutual parting of ways, I should say, in like December of 2019. So about, you know, 18 months after from May 2018, December 2019. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I was then in the position that a bunch of writers are in, almost every writer, I guess, which is I have to re query, I have to send new queries out to to people, to managers I have previously met who may have already offered me representation in the past that I had to turn down because I was already with this guy. I have to reach out to them and say, look, it's been 18 months. I need representation again. And so that's what I did. The guy I ended up signing with I was introduced to him via... There's a writer named Michael Green who has written a whole bunch of stuff. When I met him in 2017, my first time going to the Austin Film Festival as a finalist, he had just had a banner year. He had done co-written Logan, Blade Runner 2049, Alien Covenant, and Murder on the Orient Express, all in like a 16-month span. This is a crazy run of almost, I would argue, unprecedented success in terms of having wide releases of all those different franchises. One of which was nominated for an Academy Award, Logan for Best Adapted Screenplay, which he got to share that nomination. So he's at the festival. I bump into him. Long story short, he asks me what my script is about. He sees I have one of those badges on that they give you an AFF that has the name of your script and stuff like that. So I pitch it to him because I practiced the pitch. He loved the pitch. He said, send that to me. I'd like to read it. I send it to him. He reads it. Another long story short, which I won't get into, he eventually sends it to his manager. He says, I really like this. I think my manager would like this. The manager's name is Luke. Luke reaches out to me and says, I would love to sign you. I tell Luke, I just signed with this other manager yesterday, 24 hours ago. I'm sorry, I can't sign with you, Luke. And he's like, oh, I missed you. So fast forward 18 months later, when I leave that manager, I hit Luke up and I say, Luke, don't know if you remember me. Michael sent you my script. Do you Would you still want to work with me? Could, can we take a meeting? And he says, let me reread your script and see you know, if I still like it. He reads it. 
he hits me back and says, yep, this is as great as I remember. Send me anything else you got and let's meet and chat. And so I ended up signing with him in February of 2020. And as we all know, nothing happened <laughs> after that. March 2020 did not yield, you know, a big pandemic or anything that shut down the entire planet. But he told me, frankly, look, I don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic thing, but I still want to work with you if you still want to work with me and we'll try to get your stuff out there as soon as the town adjusts and they start taking reads again. And it took about three months, I think, for the town to realize, let's just do Zoom. Let's start reading scripts and meet people that way. And so that's how it happened. So I signed and Luke works at Three Arts. So I signed with Three Arts February 2020. I started writing a pilot script around those few months called Wonder Drug. And it was about the rise in like worldwide catastrophic spread of thalidomide. And it started killing women who were pregnant or excuse me, it started killing the babies that women were carrying when they were pregnant. And so while he was putting my stuff out there, I was writing that script. Fast forward about a year to maybe May 2021, everything's starting to open back up. We have a vaccine, thank God. I submit Wonder Drug to a free initiative for BIPOC writers, and they loved it. And they said, we want to send it to eight agencies. And one of the agencies, which was A3 Artists, offered to sign me. And so that's how I got my managers in, in February 2020. Then I got A3 as agents in 2021. And then a few months after that, man, my manager, Luke, sends me a text, a very cryptic text while I'm at work. He says, it's a simple question. Do you like baseball? That's all he said. <laughs> and, you know, this is Los Angeles. That could mean anything. It could mean he has box seats to go see the Dodgers. It could mean there's an original writing assignment for a baseball feature that we want to put you up for. I don't know what he's talking about. And I have a <laughs> I have a thing where I don't like to pry if people are being purposefully vague. I just like let them be vague. And so I responded very diplomatically. I said, look, I grew up watching baseball. I loved it as a kid. I don't watch it very often now, but I still enjoy games from time to time. And that was like the most diplomatically I could answer it without getting into details. <laughs> and, and he responds, I can work with that exclamation point. And that's it. <laughs> And still, I'm like, okay, well, he's he's still being vague, but whatever. A few weeks later, I get a text from him that says, hey, I just scored you a meeting with Michael Shore for the reboot of Field of Dreams. It's tomorrow morning. I think he sent me the text at 4 p.m. So he says, it's tomorrow morning at 10. So do whatever you need to do to get to prepare. Rewatch the movie, you know, read the script if you want to, whatever you want to do. So I rewatched the movie and took the meeting the next morning. And it was great. I mean, Mike is so down to earth and personable. And you'd never know that he's created, what, six shows and won a bunch of awards for half of them. And the meeting went pretty well. And he said, look, you know, I'm going to be at the Austin Film Festival next week. And I said, oh, I'm going to be there. I've got a, a script in contention. I, I have a, I'm going to be the finalist again for this other script, for the thalidomide script, Wonder Drug. And he says, oh, great. Maybe we can catch up and grab some drinks. So I get to Austin. I write a speech in case I win, because what's going to happen is, I don't know if you're familiar with how the Austin Film Festival does their awards, but everyone's in the same room who's who's in contention. So I'm in the same room as Michael Shore, who's going to get an award for like his contributions to television. So if I win, I'm going to be giving a speech in front of him. So I write a speech that's like fairly coded to him. It's It's got like baseball metaphors, analogies, <laughs> like sayings. I quoted this one thing. And so we're there. We're sitting and they're announcing the winners of the AMC pilot category, which is my category. My wife turns on her phone to record me as I get up and I didn't win. And it's like, oh. <laughs> 
Okay. So now I got this speech. I can't do anything with it. So I talked to her and I'm like, I think we should go to his panel because I want to pitch him some ideas for, for Field of Dreams because see, they haven't picked the writer yet. And we just had the meeting last week and I'm still fresh in his mind, hopefully. The only problem with that is I didn't have any ideas to pitch because <laughs> I had been like busy doing other things like working. So his panel, I think is, I, I believe it's like 60 minutes after the award show. So I have 60 minutes to come up with some ideas, which I did. We go to his panel. He does the panel. Afterwards, I, I catch up with him. He, he recognizes me because of the hair and we start talking and I pitch him a couple ideas and he's receptive to all of them. In fact, one of them was already kind of what they were doing anyway. I don't want to say it because it's a spoiler. But anyway, about four days after that, my manager shoots me a text and says, Michael Shore just submitted your name to the studio for approval to get into the room. And, you know, that's pretty great Uh, for those listening who might not know. I didn't know this until this happened. What happens is that the showrunner submits your name to the studio and the studio gets final say. So the studio might say, look, the Sean guy sounds great, but we have someone who we're paying an overall deal, you know, 300K a year on our on our you know roster. We want you to use that person instead. No, no offense to Sean, but you need to use this guy. There's a whole bunch of reasons the studio will say no. But if they say yes, after the showrunner has submitted you, then then you're in. And so I think about five days after that, the studio uh, approved it and I was in. But that, that seems like a very, it is, it's a very long-winded story. But the reason I tell it with all those bullet points is because there's no one way to get into the room. Like I met Michael Green in 2017. He connects me with a manager who I don't even sign with until what, two and a half years later. And then a year and a half after that, he submits me for Field of Dreams, which we don't even know if I wouldn't have gotten Field of Dreams if I hadn't run into Michael at the Austin Film Festival a week later. I mean, all that stuff has to connect for me to get that opportunity, right? And so when people say, you know, how did you get staff? It's a long story. It's not just, hey, I wrote a great script. It's not just, oh, I ran into the showrunner. Both of those things did happen. I I did write a script that he liked and I did run into the showrunner, but a million things happened in between there to make that stuff go down. I love when we interview writers because it's like always beautiful. Just the train of thought is just always so beautiful. I I hear what you're saying, but I think confidence is a massive part of the equation that we're not talking about. And I'm really perplexed by confidence. I just don't understand it. Like it's not something that I have. And so I always want to like get under the hood of it when I talk to someone who has confidence are you aware that you are confident? Like, and how did you derive that confidence? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. I I personally don't, I don't view it as confidence for me personally. I, I almost view it as like faking it until I make it. Like, I, I don't, I'm not, when we were going into the panel, for instance, to see Michael, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to fucking nail this. I got this in the bag. Like, I, like I know everything. Like, no, I was thinking I could pitch this stuff and he could hate it. Or I could go there to try to pitch it. And he might say, hey, Sean, not today, man. I'm doing a panel, right? You just don't know. So I, in my own mind, in the process of it, like living in the moment, I don't view it as confidence. I almost view it as I'm just going to try to do the best that I can do, whatever, however that manifests. If If best means being diplomatic in the moment, if best means pursuing this opportunity until I'm exhausted and and it can't be pursued no more, whatever the best chance, the best opportunity that I can get from that, that's how I try to execute it. I look at it less as confidence and more as like pragmatism. I try to just be as pragmatic as possible. I will say I don't get flustered very often. I don't think that's confidence though. I think it's more, again, it's 
it's this notion I have in my mind that if I look at this situation in the most objective way possible, like just remove emotion from it, what's actually happening? What are they actually saying to me? And what can I say to them to try to get across these ideas as succinctly and as uniquely as possible? then I'll know that I did my best. And they still might say no, which in this business, usually that's the worst that can happen is you get a no, then you just move on. I've gotten plenty of no's, but I, you know, I've taken staffing meetings where I didn't get the meetings, right? And I never think, oh, I wasn't confident enough. I think, well, I wasn't what they were looking for. You know, they were looking for something else. Maybe I didn't answer the questions in the right way. I'm not sure. But I, that's a long-winded way of saying I don't feel confident in the moment, but I do feel trying to be the objectively best person I can be in that moment. And then we see what happens. So back to when you moved to Los Angeles, what was that like? Like, you know, you came out, you got, you got signed, you came out to LA, like, were you instantly making money as a writer or did you have to get a day job? And what did that first year look like, you know, as you, you know, completely change your life for, for your career? Right. I mean, you know, I took a bus here and I stepped off and I said, where do the writers go? And, you know, people came flocking to me. They were like, oh, Sean, let's help you. No, I mean, my wife and I had about $12,000 saved up when we came out here. We, we went from having a giant, not giant, but c- compared to LA giant, uh, like two bedroom, two bathroom apartment in Richmond that went for like $1,200 a month to having a one bed, one bath, 400 square foot apartment in West Hollywood for something like 2100 a month, right? <laughs> and so that was a culture shock. You know, so that that first year was certainly different than what we were used to in Richmond. We realized that we could survive, you know, several months on the safe uh, on the savings and the safety net that we brought with us here, but we were going to have to get jobs soon. So I didn't make anything with my writing right away. What I started doing was applying to teaching jobs because in Richmond, I was a university professor. I was teaching journalism at like my alma mater. And I'd been doing that for six years. I had my master's degree and I had a decade of journalism experience on top of all that. So I assumed slash prayed that I could get a job somewhere in that field, either teaching journalism or working as a journalist or, or something like that. And about... Let's see, we moved here the end of November 2018. I think around May or June of 2019, maybe seven or eight months later, is when I got my first full-time job here in LA. Now, by that point, my wife had already been working for maybe three or four months for Judge Judy, believe it or not. And then she got bumped up to associate producer on this kind of sister show of Judge Judy. And it was a halfway decent job, you know, and combined with our savings, it was enough to keep us going. And then I got a job teaching at Pierce College in Woodland Hills, which I don't know how familiar people are with LA geography, but it's about 15 minutes west of Sherman Oaks. And it was a great job. Uh, the people there were great. The pay was incredible. We got free health care because if you join the community college district, you get free health care 100%. And so that's what I did between, you know, gosh, when I started in May of 2019, going all the way to November 2021. So about two and a half years, I worked there. And while I was working there, I was writing on the side. I was doing what everyone in LA has to do, working with one part of your brain and writing with the other part of your brain. And so it was kind of a bifurcated existence. And it was fine. I liked it because I liked my job. A lot of people don't like it because A, they might hate their job. B, they might like their job, but the pay is terrible. So it's like one of those two things is kind of in the back of your mind every time you write. And you're kind of writing out of a sense of desperation at that point. And I've had multiple reps tell me that that is poison, that that writing out of a sense of desperation hardly ever yields your best work. And so I've never experienced that. Knock on wood, hopefully I won't. 
But, you know, while I was working there, I wrote Wonder Drug and then I wrote actually several other pilots. Then I wrote a feature and then I wrote like my most recent pilot. I started writing it while I was still at Pierce. So that's kind of what you have to do. And that's what I did. And then I got staffed. You know, what's funny is it came full circle because we moved out here November 2018. And exactly three years to the day of us arriving to Los Angeles is when I got staffed on Field of Dreams. So it was like a complete three year journey, you know. I'd love to hear how writing competitions factor in. We are split minds from time to time. Sometimes we look at film festivals and writing competitions and think they're bullshit. They don't help people at all. But it sounds like you've had quite a lot of success in that lane and would love to hear whether you encourage other writers to participate in the competitions. Yeah, that's a big topic of contention. I should say that there's it creates contentious conversation, I should say, between a lot of working writers and a lot of aspiring writers and people in between, even reps. God, reps and execs I hear talk about it. I'm of the mindset that, well, not even the mindset. I would not be here without them, like point blank. That's that's not an opinion. Like the contests have helped me and competitions and fellowships have helped me so much that I can say with full confidence that I would not be in Los Angeles and I would not be in a writer's room without them. I mean, I met, I got connected to my current manager, like I talked about because of the Austin Film Festival, right? I got my agents because I submitted to a BIPOC initiative from Roadmap Writers, which I saw on Twitter. So not only did Roadmap Writers, which is essentially kind of a, you know, they have competitions and fellowships and stuff, but they're also on social media. So it's like social media plus writing competitions got me my agents and competitions got me my manager and then they both combined forces to get me staffing jobs right so it's it all is derived from somewhere nothing happens in a vacuum and i'll also say i won't say their names but there are like i said that there are six pure writers in chicago pd there's showrunner ep and then under them are six other writers of those six writers half of them are in the room because of competitions one is me uh, another one won the isa fast track fellowship in 2020 another one was a semifinalist in the Nickel Fellowship. And he and it was a feature that he wrote. It wasn't they don't accept pilots. He wrote a feature and that got him a rep. And the rep used that feature to get him into the room for Chicago PD like five or six years ago. So, you know, none of us would be in that we can't say for sure what wouldn't would and would not happen. I don't personally think any of us would be in that room without that chain of events. We might be in other rooms. Maybe we get other jobs and maybe we find other reps. But for someone like me who lived 3,000 miles away from Los Angeles in Richmond, Virginia, where the film industry, how do I put this politely? It exists. That's it. (laughs) It's not, you know, (laughs) it's nowhere near L.A. or New York or Atlanta or even North Carolina or Albuquerque. I don't have a connection to Los Angeles from Richmond. I'm on my own. I'm on an island where I'm writing a first pilot script. I have no one to give it to. And so my only connection to this is competitions and fellowships. And one was the Austin Film Festival. And so when people ask me about competitions and contests and fellowships, I say what we talked about before, which was approach it pragmatically. Don't spend $5,000 a year on it. That's just stupid. And I say that as someone who did spend a lot of money on them the first few years and then realized shortly thereafter, I shouldn't do that. My advice is to pick five or six that you think align with what you want to do. My personal favorites, or let me rephrase that. The ones that have helped me personally are the ISA Fast Track Fellowship. Roadmap Writers helped me, but I only submitted their free initiative. I didn't pay for anything with them. They do have some stuff you pay for. I've heard it's effective. Austin Film Festival, because essentially what happens is if you're a semifinalist or a finalist, you get a free or heavily discounted badge to go to the festival. And that's where the magic happens. 
I actually won the Austin Film Festival in 2018. That did nothing for me. I didn't get anything from that. I got more from being a finalist in 2017 because when I was on the ground doing the work, I had more chance encounters with people like Michael Green, who then sent my stuff to his manager, right? So when I talk to people about this, I'm, I'm careful to say the placement itself in any competition, whether it's Austin, Script Pipeline, which is another good one, the Page Awards, whatever, the placement itself is not the end game. It's nice. And if you win a lot of money, like I think with Page, you win 25K. That's nice. Hey, that's a good amount of money. I think Script Pipeline also offers a 25K one. You know, once you take out taxes, you got a good chunk of change there. Uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. But that's not the goal. No writer goes in there saying, all I want to do is win money and get out. What they want to do is hopefully get connections through that win and through that placement. And with Austin, that's where the magic happens. For me, anyway, that's, that's where it's happened every year I've gone. And so I always tell people competitions can be good. Contests can be good. The network-sponsored fellowships especially are really good at getting you staffing jobs, but they aren't the end-all be-all. And, and they aren't the only path. For me, they were part of my path, but it wasn't the only path. And it's not the only path today. Um, so why didn't, when you won Austin, why didn't that help you? Did you not go in person that year or... That's a good question. I went and, you know, I, I won. I don't want to like trash this category, but I won a category that was characterized as a quote unquote fellowship. And the fellowship itself didn't really do much for me. And by not not do much for me, I mean, I took one meeting and that was it. Nothing else happened with it. So now on the ground in Austin that year, I, you know, met some great people. I made some great connections. I met a woman named, or I should say, I ran into a woman I had met previously a few months prior at another film festival. Her name is Wendy Calhoun. She was on FX's Justified. She signed an overall with ABC Disney, I think, a few years back. Wow. She's a big player in the industry. And she saw me win the fellowship. She saw me go on stage and make a speech when I won the fellowship. And then I get back to the table and I look at my phone and I have a text from Wendy Calhoun. And she's like, hey, congratulations. That was a great speech. Do you want to go grab drinks with us after? And it's like, that's the type of on the ground experience that can come to fruition in Austin if you've been working other festivals, if you've been on social media being active. But the reason I say the win itself didn't do anything was because it just, you know, I had the fellowship and then I had the one meeting and nothing else came from that. But the stuff that emerged from it, from other people, from third parties, sure. You know, I, I was now on the radar of Wendy Calhoun, who can get people staff. Now, she never got me any staffing opportunities, but she's a great person to know. And if I'm in my third or fourth room a year from now, I can text her and say, you know, hey, I just got offered co-showrunner, but I don't know what I'm doing. Can I hop on the phone with you? And it's like, she saw my win in 2018. And now because of that, I can reach back out to her and be like, remember me from a few years back? I got this opportunity. Can we chat? To me, that's the type of stuff that that is the big stuff that you get from Austin. I've heard people, especially I hate to say this, I, the spec categories, like if you spec Better Call Saul, which I did once, if you spec, you know, The Handmaid's Tale or something and you win, you get that great trophy. But a rep is not going to want to read your spec. I know people who've gotten a, like some jobs, especially animated jobs through specs. But when a manager or an agent looks through the finalists and the winners list at Austin, which they do, I know several who do do that, they're not going to look at the person who won the spec category and be like, I want to meet that guy. I want to see what his thing's about. Why? You're not you're not going to be able to get his Better Call Saul spec made. That's not going to pay you 10% on a like commission on anything. So I, I, I bring that up to say that like you got to make sure when you win this stuff, you win in categories 
that that will allow others to reach out to you with prospects that they can earn money from. If you went Austin with the drama pilot category and, and a manager reads the log line and they're like, damn, this is a great idea. And they just won Austin. So the script has to be decent. They're going to reach out to you. They're going to say, hey, I read your log line. Can we have a general? And then you might get signed from that. That's not going to happen with a spec. And, and it didn't happen with my fellowship win. That being said, the script that won that fellowship was one of two scripts that won me the fast track fellowship, which I mentioned before. And that got me managers, right? That's a long answer uh, to your question, Ulrich. But that's, I, I didn't want to just be like, because Austin sucks. It's not, that's not why I didn't do anything <laughs> for me, right? It, it's a very, there's a lot of moving parts and details that go right, into no. that. I think we have to move to our final six questions and we'll do it kind of as a rapid fire round if we can. What's the first, I mean, actually, we didn't even get into this. I don't know if you've made a movie as a director. I don't know anything like that. But what's the first script you've ever written or first film you've ever made? And how do you feel about it now? The first thing I ever writ- wrote was probably in film school. And I don't even remember what it was about. I can't remember. It, it was in film school probably fit 14 years ago and it never got made. I know that. I think it was like a murder mystery that took place on my college campus. Like that's original and I've never directed anything. So. And what's the best writing advice you've ever received? Best writing advice. I think the, the one of the pieces of writing advice I take to heart, it wasn't given directly to me, but I heard Aaron Sorkin say it. He said, if you put two characters in a room who disagree about something, then you have a scene. And I take that to heart because that's essentially conflict, right? And and so I love that. Whenever I'm writing a scene, I'm like, okay, what do these two people disagree about, even if they're friends? So that's, I would say that's the best piece of simplistic writing advice. What's some bad writing advice you've seen or heard? Ooh, bad writing advice. You have to write every day. And if you don't, then you're not a writer. That That's the worst <laughs> advice you could ever tell anyone, in my opinion. I go weeks without writing sometimes. Hell, I've gone months without writing. And then if I love an idea, I might write for four consecutive weeks. Like I, I wake up in the morning ready to write. But I, I think the notion that you absolutely have to write every single day is extremely harmful to people's mental health because then they view themselves as failures if they don't do it. Not everyone can write every day. Some people work two jobs. Some people are single moms. Some people are both. <laughs> it's like it's it's like, you know, I, I think you just have to dispel with that notion that if you don't if you don't write every day, then you're a bad person or you're a bad writer. And that's just, that could be, couldn't be farther from the truth. Do you have a goal as a writer? I mean, it'd be great to have my name attached to a show where it says, you know, created by. That's something that I would love. Growing up, I would always watch, you know, Buffy, The West Wing, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. And when it comes up and says executive producer Vince Gilligan or executive producer Aaron Sorkin or created by Vince Gilligan, like that's the type of thing. That's one of the reasons I got into this business was because of names like that. So to have that be my experience would be fantastic. Go Buffy. If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Oh, boy. That's a big one. I don't know. I haven't really... uh, That's a really good question. But usually questions like that are derived from some sort of extreme failure. Like, oh, man, I wish I could have stopped that failure from happening. But I feel like I've followed a a pretty fortuitous and decent path. Maybe maybe my one piece of advice would be write sooner because I didn't really start writing until recently. But if I gave myself that advice, I would be like, okay, what do I write? I don't like it's like one of those things where when, when it strikes, it strikes. But I might say that, you know, right sooner, because at least at that point, I could have my craft down a little more, you know. Then last question. It's normally is making movies hard, but maybe let's try is making TV hard or is writing scripts hard? <laughs> For me, writing original scripts is not hard. It's fun. 
writing scripts in someone else's voice is hard only in that you have to attune yourself. You have to acclimate to the showrunner's vision. That's the hard part. It's not impossible. It's not even bad. Like it's not a bad experience. It's just different. And this only being my second room, I would say making this TV is hard for sure. What? Thank you for being on the show. What is your call to action if you have one? Do you want people to watch Chicago PD every single night? Do you want them to follow you on Twitter? Do you want that? What do you what do you want from people? Well, I would say watch Chicago PD because that'll help us stay on the air for sure. That's definitely something that I will selfishly push. I would also say if you have enjoyed listening to this at all, follow me on Twitter is before Elon burns it down. My name on there is Sean Two Names, the word TWO. And yeah, I'm I'm on there a lot. I retweet my wife a lot because she does great stuff and I try to tweet halfway decent writing advice when I feel like it. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Arik, what do you remember about chatting with Sean? Like years ago? A year ago. In 2022. <laughs> it was one year ago. Yeah. Uh, so I remember, well, first I just kind of remember Sean as a person, like meeting him at Austin. And, uh, you know, shout out to Tate, actually future guest of the show. She hasn't been, we recorded our episode with Tate and, and York, but we haven't actually released it yet. But uh, Tate was the one who introduced us to Sean, which was really wonderful. And Tate's just this amazing person. But anyways... Meeting Sean was great. And then having him on the show, I felt like when I, when he told me his story or part of his story, when I met him, I was like, Oh my God, this is like total gold. Like we have to like capture this like on the show. And I think we nailed it. I think we got all the good bits. We got, there was even more things that he said that I wasn't aware of. I loved hearing about, you know, how he strategized you know, before he moved to Los Angeles and like the, the things he did to set himself up for success, applying for these screenwriting competitions, just staying focused, like giving himself time to write all these things I think are so key. And then like, just look, you know, five, six, seven years into this. And then like, now he's, you know, been in two writers rooms and you know, he's, the world is his oyster. <laughs> so that's, yeah. It's pretty amazing. What do you remember from the conversation? I remember asking him about confidence because he just struck me as someone who <laughs> was like, yeah, this is an opportunity. I'm going to go take it. And it's uh, that always like confounds me. And I just was really pulled in by him. Like when we talk to writers, it's always the best. Like I love talking to writers. I think it's probably my favorite because they're really good storytellers. So when they summarize their life, they see it as like a narrative unto itself. So they can draw inferences like the inferences that we look for when we interview guests, they are they've already inferred. They've already figured out their the narrative of their bio, the narrative of their story as a screenwriter, their story as a TV writer. And I just was really pulled into how he answered questions and his confidence and his presence. So I thought that was a really good interview. I'm excited to re-listen to it actually. Did we talk about this on the show or this was this is something he talked about on the panel that I saw, but like and, and they all talked about all the writers, but when they go through these programs, they actually have you develop your elevator pitch like for yourself. Oh, so like, I don't think it's we like, talked about that. I don't it's remember. It's kind of amazing. So like, it, but it speaks to all the things that you just said about I'm like having this, this narrative of his own life as a writer and like his own story. It's like, that's basically what it is. Like they want to know who you are as a writer, like in a sentence basically. Yeah. And so a couple of them actually did 
their elevator pitches, you know, on stage uh, in front of everybody, which was amazing. I can't remember what Sean's was, but yeah, it's kind of, it's a kind of incredible thing to, to think about. And that like, you know, when you go into these, these fancy programs, it's like they train you to, to think that way and to have that ready so that when you're in a room or you're in an interview or whatever, and someone wants to know about who you are as a writer, you can encapsulate it super quickly, you know? And that's like also a challenge as a writer too, to be like, how can I write my life story in, in, into an elevator pitch? It's like kind of crazy, you know? Well, it's like industry-wise, career-wise, I get it. I think that's a really useful skill to have. Life-wise, I think it's a problem. <laughs> right? It's like you shouldn't be able to encapsulate yourself into what sentence, right? We are complex beings. Like <laughs> we should never be that reductive about ourselves. But I, I get it. I get why they're encouraging <laughs> writers to do it. I just think like, like if you really think about it, like that's a huge problem. Like that's like a like a bad thing to encourage in life. Well, well, uh, you know, it's not like when I met any of these people in real life that gave me their elevator pitches. <laughs> So, they were humans again, they, right? They, they were humans. Off. Yeah. Well, I think they they need they, you know it's for a very specific you know use case, and then also I think yeah. it's also because it helps you understand who how you fit into like a room, for instance. Like if that's who you are, you're filling that gap that no one else can fill. You know, you have to do that. You have to do that. But it's just so like. It's so depressing. It's like there, there's so much. You're so much more than your log line, everyone. You're so much more than the first so line much of your more. bio. Yes, indeed. Well, here, Liz, I want to just jump right into this because we yeah. we did a bonus episode over the break, which you know apparently people are liking. Got really good numbers. I was like, hey. wait. So if we just drop another episode later in the week, people are just going to listen to it the way they listened to the one three days ago. That how it works? Okay, interesting. Maybe uh, they're signing to what Alex Ferrari's been pushing on us for years and years. Two a week, three a week. That guy does five a week. Hey. Cool. Anyways, too much. But yeah, so we got this listener question for, you know, the game. And you weren't there to answer it, you know, because Eric couldn't, you know, he, he needed something that he hadn't seen before. And this was one that got sent that he didn't see. So basically, this question was great. And I don't know, did you listen to this episode? You oh, know I, this I just listened to the game. That's all I listened to. Oh, I didn't listen okay. to the rest of the episode. <laughs> So just to like kind of recap for people. So the question was like, I'm going to do a really shoddy version of it, but it was like, you know, you've been working on this project for a long time. It's your baby. It gets basically studio attention. And then the studio like wants to move forward as a studio film. And just when this happens, you find out that you're pregnant and you're a person who can give birth to a, ch- to a child. And then there was another little added bonus where you've had infertility problems and you're like older, you know, so like, you know, this has ticking been ticking time bomb. Yeah, ticking clock. Exactly, really. exactly. Um, so Eric and I, as men, did our best to answer this question. <laughs> but I feel like I really wanted to hear the female perspective on this and like what uh, you thought of this question. It's so funny. Yeah, I think what was missing from your answer were things that you couldn't possibly know, like just the physical and mental repercussions of pregnancy and birth. And this is, you know, and it would be this like you are exhausted, you know, when you have a baby, you're probably exhausted I guess I, I'm like tentative about saying anything because I think everyone's experience is really traumatic for caretaking. But I would say from my experience, I, you lose your brain because all the resources are going to the manufacturing of something else. Wow. So it's hard to be creative and it's hard to think as clearly as you could before. And that that goes on from like mid to late 
pregnancy till like a year after the baby is born. Like you just, I really didn't come back to normal for a very long time. And also I think sleep schedules impact these things just like it would for a man or a a non-birthing parent of any sort. I think that you're going to have some sort of disruption to your schedule. So it's just an acknowledgement that you're, it's going to be very hard to give your best if biologically a lot of resources are going towards the parasite in your body. And that's how I do see it. I would say the other thing that you guys didn't have any concern about that I very much have concern about is discrimination. Mm. I have friends who were fired, not as directors, but as actors who were fired by their agents when they told them they were pregnant. Wow. I have actor friends who kept their pregnancy a secret almost until birth. I just think in this industry, you're a commodity. And if you can't produce in this same way, if you can't be as flexible as an actor, if you're if they have to make accommodations for you, the fear is that your potential commerciality wise commercially is just not there. And you're not going to be a money making producer for your agent, for your manager, for your whatever. So what would I do in the scenario that that was discussed in the game? I really would wait to tell my producers until I had to. I mean, I think that there's fears and miscarriages, chemical pregnancies, miscarriages. You know, there could be genetic abnormalities. There could be, you know, you could be flagged for things. There's a lot of major things that happen in pregnancy that you want to keep under your hat as long as possible if you don't have to. But a lot of people do because it's incredibly private. And my producers don't need to know any of that. And I also think timelines for films change so frequently that like you may end up disclosing something that you don't need to disclose, right? You say something Mm -hmm. like, I'm pregnant, I'm going to get delivered in six months. Well, unbeknownst to you, if you didn't say anything, that film could be delayed 18 months without you even needed to bring up anything. Right, right. right. That's a good point. So I do think it's an impossible scenario and you guys did the best you could. And I thought you thought were very like lovely, optimistic answers (laughs) and very like family friendly answers. I think there's a lot of I think there's a good portion of women who might answer and say, like, I pick the film, you know, and I think that I think you'd get a lot of different answers no matter who you who you asked. I think you two are just very like, like sweet and optimistic and like (laughs) positive about life and and feeling like you can make it all work. Right. Right. Or or, I mean, also just like if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out too. you know, to to whatever degree, like being being ready to like put it aside for you know whatever but i think what you you said is really smart about like things change on a, on a on a instant you know like one minute you're greenlit the next minute you're delayed two years so like yeah that's totally valid that like the, yeah. you don't need to, you shouldn't tell them until you absolutely have to you know that makes sense too ultimately your health like your health is the most important your health is more important than film right you're like so whether it's whether someone sees that as the health of themselves or the health of their baby or however people interpret this question, because it's good. Like this question is dangerous. Like there's this is a like <laughs> this is a minefield. The the verbiage that I'm using, I'm trying to be incredibly careful about it. <laughs> but health is more important than the movie. So like ultimately, if it comes down to, you know, the health of the mother 
or a movie happening, like you gotta support the health of the mother. That's way more important than anything at all. Even a, even like a big career break. Yeah, absolutely. Liz, do you have a question for me? I for do week? have a question for you. Now, what a good transition. Eric Toms, our producer, has provided us another The Game question. And just a reminder, so we, we, we gave you a little bit of a preview, but Eric is gonna set up an indie film quandary. And actually, this one is provided by listener and Patreon member Colin Stryker, who has submitted Ooh. two other questions in the past. I think, think so, yeah. He's a VIP. And Eric did add one additional option to our multiple choice answers. And Eric has not heard any of these, any of this information yet. He's going in blind and we'll see how he responds. So, all right. After a long, difficult process of obtaining a permit from a national forest or national park organization, you've been given the go-ahead to move forward to produce a low-budget feature at a remote, one-of-a-kind wilderness location. Halfway into your shoot, it's always halfway into our shoot, right? It's always like halfway into your shoot. <laughs> halfway into your shoot, one of your crew members is being careless and seriously injures themselves by falling off a cliff, <sighs> though it isn't life-threatening. This crew member is not essential and is... <laughs> Sorry. It's such a horrible thing to say. Okay, this crew member is not essential and assumes full responsibility for the incident. However, when the government agency finds out, they decide the production isn't safe and they revoke your permit. As the producer, you are the only one who knows the permit has been revoked. Since the location is remote and your crew is small, you think you could get away with shooting and none would be the wiser. Though, in the off chance you are caught, you know you will be fined heavily and could get into significant legal trouble. Note that the film is entirely dependent upon this location. There is no way the film makes sense if you can't continue to shoot there. A. Do you go ahead and shoot anyway, despite the revocation of the permit? And if so, do you inform your crew or keep it under wraps? B, do you cancel the production completely? And this is an additional option from Eric C. Do you try to match your existing footage with sets? But, okay, so he's asking if you want to match your existing footage with sets. Or D, other. It's a lot of information, Alrek. What are you thinking? Well, having gotten permits from, you know, national parks and such in the past and knowing how persnickety they are yeah i feel like basically <laughs> once they revoke your permit you're basically screwed right like like you you basically there's nothing that you can do like they're going to call the cops on you if you keep shooting in this scenario it says like you're in the wilderness so like they, maybe they can't reach you in time like maybe you're like in a place where they're they're not going to be able to come get you or they or they'll there's no way they they'll for them to know if you're still shooting for some reason so like basically like there is no <laughs> there's no way to shoot and and not get fined right like you're gonna get fined because they'll know that you finished the movie you know when it comes out and like there's there's just no way that you can't be fined if you continue whether or not you can actually finish it without them stopping you that's the other question like that's possible. So it's kind of tough. It's a really tough situation to be in going and matching it in sets. I mean, I feel like, I feel like there's a couple scenarios here that you could play out, you know, and, and they're both expensive. I guess you probably, probably figure out what the fine is or like what, what the ramifications are if you do continue. Like, cause basically there are situations where like if you shot and you don't have permission, you just can't release it ever. Like you can't like the, the movie will be, will be stopped from being released 
And, you know, they do this with commercials sometimes. Like we, we tried to shoot, I don't know if it was something I was on or my, my buddy was on, but at one point we like tried to shoot this building in Los Angeles. And they were like, if you, if this shows up, you know, anywhere, we will find you and we will find you or we will remove it, you know? So it's like, like they, they think that even to the point where they like asked them for like the card to his camera before, like they caught him doing it and they're like asking for the card, you know? So it's like, if they're really serious, like this is not going to end well. So yeah, other, I go other. So here's what I would do. Wilderness areas and such, they're, they're all, you know, a forest's a forest. A cliff is a cliff or whatever, you know, like you're probably going to have to delay production for a while, but like you can find another place. And if you've done your job well, you'll have a backup. Like you're not going to be only with one place. You'll have other options you can go to. So what I would do is I would halt production tell everybody like you know sorry like you know work out whatever deal we can kill fees and whatnot etc and then you know if we could do it fast enough where we could literally just move the 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 shoot over a weekend to another location i try doing that although this sounds like it's so far out in the middle of nowhere maybe that's not possible but i feel like there's probably a way where you can you could be creative and like figure out like what can we shoot in a new place that you know needs less crew needs less resources like rewrite the schedule to 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 fit that go shoot those things and then like gear up to bring everyone back like you know as you're planning for like the last week or however much more time you have to shoot in this new location so you basically like you know kind of take a pause a beat like try to figure out like the, the best solution to go to your backup and then if that you know if you can't do it like over a weekend or like take one one or two days down then, you know, try to get it back up and running as soon as you can. I would basically try to avoid releasing the crew if possible. But then if that's not possible, then then you do the kill fee thing and then you like just plan it for three, three, six months down the line. Although that scares me. I'd rather try to get it done as soon as possible. Like basically, I'd rather, rather lose a day or two, rewrite the movie and then shoot it in like the next week than to like... The losing take, momentum. Yeah. Take six months off because then like maybe you never come back, you know, like I feel like you want to, you want to strike while the iron's hot, while you have everyone with you do what you can to actually make the movie. But yeah, I feel like if the, if the national park is telling you, no, there's basically, yeah. I mean, maybe you can cheat one day without them knowing, you know, because like, how are they going to know if you shot that footage before they revoked your permit or after you revoked your permit? But yeah, I feel like basically fake it till you make it as much as you can, but then all, then then re re relocate, you know, before it becomes a big problem because if you don't, you're going to be screwed, you know, at the end of the project, no matter what. So what would you do, Liz? What would you do in this situation? Well, but I think your suggestion and I think Eric's additional question about matching existing footage with sets are really interesting. But I just want to acknowledge that Colin wrote, the film is entirely dependent upon this location. There is, but it's never, but that's never true. There's no movie that's entirely <laughs> dependent on one no, location. No, I know, but like this is the question. These are the rules. There's no way that Tom makes breaking any sense. the rules. <laughs> no, I mean your answer is a great answer. You, you you rewrite the movie to make sense, okay. basically. Because, so, <laughs> because, yeah, I feel like there's, yeah, I don't know. No, I know. Sorry, what you're sorry, saying. Colin. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. I think it's a really good strategy. But if we're gonna play by 
color-specific uh, thing, then I think the answer is actually negotiations with the park. I mean, first of all, why did you have a non-essential crew person there in the first place? Like, if they're not essential, why were they there? If they were not, if they're an idiot and just like being goofy and like being very reckless, why were they on your crew? Like, maybe, maybe they mean like a PA or something, like someone who can be easily replaced. Oh, which I think, okay. like this yeah. question, yeah. it doesn't really make any sense because like them being replaced isn't the problem it's that you're fucked by the permit you know right well so my thing is like i would go as the producer to the park and i would say look we real like i would say it in better words but i would say like we really fucked up this is all our fault we do not want you to be concerned about this production at all i'm hiring an outside security person to be there the entire shoot so you don't have to worry about us you can vet them in some way and that guy who is an idiot sorry is it a guy i've just decided it's a guy that's really horrible of me person that person who is an idiot has been fired and is not going to be on our set so it's like for me my you know you see wiggle room in the location and even though Colin didn't give us any wiggle room with the park office, I've decided there's wiggle room there. So I'm cheating, too, is what I'm acknowledging. <laughs> and it would be, how can I make this better for you? Because if this location is that important, that I would try to figure out the bear, the blockade is the park office. Right. And it's they're worried about safety. They're worried about liability. OK, if they don't have the resources to bring someone that works for the office to our shoot, which would be, I think, the obvious next step to request to say like no come come be on our set be a part of it you could watch us to make sure that we're legit and when nothing bad is going to happen again then you offer to hire outside outside security outside safety regulator outside stunt person whoever it is to make them feel better to make them feel like that they could take a second chance on you yeah i mean you know in the, in the injury scenario like you have you have to have insurance to shoot in a national park anyways so like your insurance would be what's liable for this injury not the park at all so like they don't really have a reason to shut you down for that you know which is again i'm just breaking colin's question (laughs) you know so like i feel like you know and if you've done your job well with the park in the beginning they're gonna love you and they're gonna be very supportive and they're gonna want to help you they're not gonna be trying to, to shut you down you know but i mean just you know to play the game I think we gave good answers. I like I like your negotiation answer because like there usually is like a way. There's always a way. There's always some sort of, you know, negotiation, some sort of something to like, you know, get things rolling. So I like I like that approach. Los Angeles national parks are notorious for stuff like this. Like when when I was at USC and we were shooting in Griffith Park, it was like it's very it's very very easy to piss them off and very hard to get on their good side. So I could see a park overstepping and saying like, no, you can't shoot here. Even if like, yeah. even that if that doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. Griffith Park. I've shot there twice. Yeah. They're, they're fun to work with. But I mean, they're okay. They're nice people. It's just like everything in LA is just costs lots of money. You yeah. know, like you gotta pay the permit for uh, like, you know, film LA you got to pay the permit for a Griffith Park. You got to pay this extra fee for this person. They'd also always have a person with you at all times anyways, you know, so like, it's not like you could sneak really because that person would be there. So maybe if your friend, that guy's cool, then maybe they would be like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, which happens sometimes. You get really cool rangers and they like let you slightly bend the rules here and there, you know, which yeah. is, 
which is good and has happened before. So I don't know. I feel like I think we answered this question thoroughly, but I do say that like, you know, any movie, like you, you can think of a way to make it work in a new location. There's always a clever rewriting something or other, you know, but I like the question. Good job, Colin. And thanks for the additions, Eric. Although I would have really going into a set after being in, 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 uh, you know, nature. It's not, no, nah, no, nah, man. We gotta, we gotta find some other nature to go to. We can't go to a set. This is gonna be, it's gonna look, it's so hard to make that look right, you know? Anyways, if you have any game suggestions, game questions, uh, other questions, comments, thoughts, anything, you can send us those things to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Hey, it's your chance. You can be the first review in 2023 anybody out there you could you could stake it and your name will be forever memorialized as the first ever 2023 review for the making movies podcast so don't wait too long because someone's gonna get it soon <laughs> you can also check us out on facebook instagram and twitter at mmih podcast and and on youtube at making movies is hard podcast don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is great. And we have a code, MLIH. Get 20% off. So use that today when you do that, when you sign up. Thanks to Sean Colin Smith for coming on the show, and a big thanks to Colin, Travis, and Kristen from the Austin Film Festival for including us in the festival where we met Sean. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome and for bringing the whole awesome trip together in the first place, which made this episode possible. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Wait, do you know why this is going to be a great episode? Why? There's three Collins in this episode. Oh my god. Three. Wow. All right. I'll start. Three Collins. That's the blooper. <laughs> <laughs>